This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. It is the GC Roundtable two years later. Uh, my name is Sarah Swank. I'm with the law firm of Nixon Peabody out of the Washington, D.C. office. And today I have with me Rich Corman and Dave Rowan. Uh, Rich, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Good. Thank you, Sarah and uh, Dave. Uh, good day, everyone. Uh, my name is Rich Corman, and I'm Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel for Avera Health. Avera Health is a healthcare system based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We comprise about uh, 40 hospitals and hundreds of care locations throughout eastern South Dakota, southwest Minnesota, northwest Iowa, and northeast Nebraska. Happy to be here today and looking forward to talking about uh, two years of COVID. Remarkable how two years has gone by. It's it's slow and fast, right? Um, Dave, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Sarah and Rich. Good to be connected again. And I think as we talked a little bit before, no one thought we'd be uh, uh, doing these many uh, sequenced uh, events. But Dave Ron, I'm the Chief Legal Officer at the Clayton Clinic. I've been uh, the General Counsel or Chief Legal Officer for about 26 years. Cleveland Clinic has, not surprisingly, its its major facility in Cleveland, Ohio, with a number of hospitals uh, in Northeast Ohio. Uh, We have about 18 hospitals in total. And then we've got uh, five hospitals in Florida and facilities and other locations. We also have a facility in Abu Dhabi, Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, that we maintain in connection with the Mabadala Healthcare and we just opened up a hospital in London, and we have some other international operations. So happy to be here. Sarah, back to you. Great. Thank you. So just to frame this for the audience, um, uh, in March of, the end of March of 2020, um, AHLA said, you know, you did a couple podcasts where you talked to in-house counsel. It'd be really great to get the general counsel perspective on what was happening. And so I called up Rich, Dave, and Mark, who couldn't join us today, Mark um, Goldstone, um, and said, hey, would you like to be on this podcast? We're trying to get information out to the country. And you agreed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so we then, a year later, said, wow, we should, we should take a look at where we've been in this year. And then we should get back on a podcast and talk about it. And so now, you know, Rich and Dave, here we are two years later. And I think we partly joked, partly we're a little sad that the idea that we might need to have a year or two reunion. Um, So here we are. I went back and pulled my questions to try to see, was I, were we talking about the right things what were we talking about and I and I looked and the very first question I asked you was what do you believe your what do you believe your role as a general counsel is in responding to in the response to COVID and and is it different than it was before COVID and so I'd almost like to ask you that question again what has been your role and do you think it's changed I'll start with you Dave well I think that Uh, Thanks, Sarah. And uh, I think that part of the role is changing all the time, regardless of whether there's COVID or not. Uh, But in particular, with respect to COVID, I think that all of us had to pivot very rapidly uh, into uh, whether people were going to be in the office or not in the office. Uh, And that's something I think I'm going to park to the side for now. I think that the hybrid model and how we interact uh, but I think that as far as uh, being in the office, I've been in the office, uh, that's the regular mode, because I think that during COVID, there's been much, uh, let's say, counseling, uh, working with a governance team to be as flexible as possible. And I think that's 
And our model is CEOs down the hallway and, and you, I mean, there are many things coming up every day. I think that we have a practice area approach where we have lawyers who specialize in, in areas that we have repetitive need for and also tied into the clinical areas. Those clinical areas, of course, were uh, operating at full speed. And I think that uh, I'm very happy that the legal department, I also cover government relations, quickly went into a mode of the hybrid model or stay at home or whatever and got the work done. And I think that's, uh, that's a tribute to them. And I think that uh, everybody on this call probably has been amazed at how well people can adjust, answer questions that were different than before COVID. And I think one thing that it was, along with all the bad things that happened, there were a lot of decisions that had to be made where you looked at the regulations, you said, this is what we're gonna do. And if we're going to modify a ventilator, for example, to handle two patients versus one, how do we go about that? I think there's a lot of decision-making that uh, was a good training ground for all of our lawyers to make decisions, evaluate risk and alike. Uh, so I think that uh, I think everybody has been pleasantly surprised at how quickly the model changed. Uh, I think more recently, we're all dealing with uh, the increased inflationary pressures and the like. But Sarah, I'm gonna leave it at that and let Rich take up the next question. Yeah, Rich, how has your role either stayed the same or changed um, because of the pandemic? Oh, thanks, Sarah. And actually, I would just uh, echo a lot of what uh, Dave said as well. Uh, you know, some attorneys and other staff within the Office of General Counsel here are now permanently working from home. And those of us working in the office as uh, well, maybe uh, lower in number, but nonetheless, our availability, um, regardless of where you are, needs to be um, top of mind. Uh, regarding my role before COVID, um, first of all, it's, it's hard to almost remember um, when COVID wasn't with us because it seems like the last two plus years has gone by so quickly, but it also feels like it's um, 10 years in the making. Um, but prior to COVID, um, you know, the bread and butter issues that we were facing in the legal department uh, really did not revolve around, you know, um, uh, you know, virtual work, virtual care. But as I can imagine as well with Dave, a lot of those issues and questions have come up and still come up um, because, you know, uh, various care locations now not only include physical locations, but also virtual locations. And the regulatory and uh, uh, legal uh, status of those going across state lines. Um, now we don't have the international component that Dave has at the Cleveland Clinic, um, but that would be uh, uh, another um, issue I'm sure uh, he'll be discussing as we go on in this podcast. Um, I've also received quite a few more governance questions uh, since the uh, pandemic hit with regard to, you know, attendance at uh, uh, board meetings and board committee meetings um, and uh, the work that needs to be done at each one of those levels, um, either via phone or via WebEx or Zoom or, or whatever platform that you on. But all in all, um, I think we've adapted very well um, over the time period. Um, but then also, um, um, as Dave indicated, you know, solutions need to come much quicker, uh, it seems like, uh, nowadays, because, you know, what is um, appropriate today may not be so tomorrow based on, you know, uh, best practices, government regulation, um, or the like. So it's uh, still somewhat a work in progress. Uh, but it seems like um, from prior to COVID, within COVID, and hopefully coming out of COVID, um, we still uh, certainly add value um, to the decisions that are being made all throughout Avera for the benefit of our patients. Yeah, so it's one thing I, I've been hearing a lot, thinking a lot about um, 
it impacts our work. We look at it across the country as this, this idea of the great resignation or the idea of people taking a, a time to think about uh, their work setting. And, and we know that that has impacted healthcare uh, quite, a, quite a lot. And, and in fact, it's, it's, it's nursing, it's, um, it's CEO retirements we're seeing, legal retirements. Uh, um, it's people saying, I'd rather work um, virtually or as a traveler, or what are some of the things you're seeing around, around staffing and resignations and how the future of like our, our workforce, especially in healthcare, what are some of the things you've been seeing or thinking about um, and how have you been kind of keeping apprised of those and advising your board about those as well? Um, Dave, I'll start with you. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, and I'll just say, Rich, I think it, uh, I, can, I can say ditto. I think that you did a great summary of what you're doing. And I think it's, it's just evidence that no matter where you are, what size organization, you got some of the same issues and problems. So, Sarah, I think that uh, from a standpoint of uh, staffing and healthcare and staffing in a lot of other industries, that uh, that there just are not enough people. Obviously, inflation, compensation, but it's not just the money. And I think that uh, in in the COVID, we've had various waves where uh, you know we had a lot of COVID-related workforce problems. And how do you staff up? Then you've got uh, a overwhelming demand for healthcare services and not enough staff. Um, and again, it's not just money. And, and you have to respect people who have been working extremely hard, some burnout, uh, some deciding that they're going to take a break of some type. And it's a challenge. Uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's I would, as far as I can tell, pretty uniform across the U.S. and not just only in the U.S. Um, you mentioned how do you keep your board informed? I think that uh, we had implemented before COVID the idea of an executive committee of the board. And I'd have to say we've had great participation by board members uh, in keeping them informed on what we're doing and getting suggestions from them. Uh, so that's worked out very well. I think uh, we had a CEO who's communicated on a very regular basis and other executives uh, to deal with workforce issues. One thing we did was we did not reduce during COVID, uh, reduce wages or do any layoffs. Um, and that was certainly beneficial to our workforce. But we, like everybody else, you know, struggling with what works. Clearly, you have to be flexible with compared to work at home or remotely, but with caregivers, frontline people, that's not possible. And um, I think that we try to be as transparent, provide as much uh, hope that there's, there's additional staff coming, but it's, it's difficult. Um, and uh, I think we're all struggling with some of the same things. Yeah, it's looking at some of the numbers around um, staffing, there were some states that were over 50% understaffed in some of the hospitals, which is, you know, some of that could be you know, actually having COVID, some of that could be leaving the hospital or going to a different care setting. Some of it could have been retirements. I mean, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of different issues, it, it seems. Rich, how about you? What are some of the items you've been thinking about around um, staffing or resignations or, you know, changes in, in the C-suite? Um, and, and how are you keeping your, your board informed of these market issues and care issues? Thanks, Sarah. And, and once again, just echo what um, Dave said about um, uh, his challenges with the Cleveland Clinic. Um, at Avera as well, it's, it's a challenging employment environment um, because who uh, we are competing with for employees has essentially expanded um, due to COVID. Uh, someone can uh, essentially make the same or even more um, at a fast food establishment than working at one of our nursing homes. And we've been working hard to try to rectify that 
by raising um, salaries all throughout Avera. Um, however, those have challenges as well because um, more often than not, we are the largest um, employer in each one of our um, locations. And so if we raise our salaries, then of course the market in all of those areas, they have to raise all of their salaries as well. And it just, uh, inflationary pressures may feed off of each other. So we're always concerned about that. Um, another aspect of staffing is really right-sizing um, staffing and having uh, those 19 to 20,000 folks who work for us working at the top of their license, as, they, as we tell folks. Um, we want everyone to be um, as productive as possible, but also doing what they can to take care of patients wherever they are. Uh, one area that we're seeing significant um, challenges is in uh, long-term care. Um, in our nursing homes, um, all throughout our footprint, um, it's becoming harder and harder to find folks to work in our nursing homes so that we can you know, keep them uh, open um, and accessible um, to the top of the license of each one of those uh, nursing home locations. Um, and then finally, how we've been able to keep um, our board and other governance structures informed. Um, uh, as Dave said, uh, they began uh, an executive committee uh, component, um, but here at uh, Avera, uh, we've actually increased um, email communication uh, from uh, the central uh, executive office here at Avera to all of our um, board chairs and, and um, governance individuals, just making sure that they are kept up to speed on how we are meeting the needs of uh, uh, each one um, of their communities as well. Because as uh, you can imagine, we have board members and others um, from uh, within our footprint and outside of our footprint and making sure that they have um, up-to-date information about you know, staffing and uh, just numbers in general has been a benefit for all of us in working through COVID. You know, it's interesting. One of the things you said, Dave, and, and I keep hearing you say you're echoing each other, right? Which is, which is we, you know, I did a, hosted a podcast where we had, I purposely had chief legal officers from children's hospitals from different parts of the country. So I had, there was somebody from Connecticut, there was somebody from Chicago and someone from California. And what I thought was there may be some differences, like some similarities, some differences. What was interesting was there were some different approaches and we definitely, I think people learn from each other, but it was really much more similar than I think any of us thought. And in fact, somebody said, wow, I guess you're right. You did put, we were, we were from, you know, from three different parts of the country and we really are having a shared experience. In, in, in that. And one of the um, items that we did touch on in that podcast, and it's something that I'm just uh, I'm seeing a lot, both, you know, on the innovation side and also, you know, in the, in the operational side of, of hospitals and health systems and others, which is the um, working through what they're calling the, the mental health pandemic, the idea that we, <laughs> I think one article I read in NPR said it, it's a tsunami. Um, like, and some people say the wave, the waves have come uh, of a mental health uh, pandemic. That, that in fact, that that this kind of increased um, pressures on people that were already suffering or who had a health condition, but also that we all collectively have experienced a level of ongoing trauma in various forms because of it including our own mental health professionals who are out treating and um, helping people. And so uh, this is something that I think, and for example, in that podcast, we heard one uh, chief legal officer say, well, you know, we're building a, a, a mental health facility for children because it, it really is that critical to the needs of our state and our community. Um, what are some of what you're seeing in, in response to what has been called this mental health crisis. Um, Rich, why don't I go with you first on this one? Oh, very good. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, actually, uh, one of the uh, uh, components that we are 
able to provide to many of our communities is our behavioral health services. Um, and we were fortunate here at Avera that uh, we had a, 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 an individual who came forward and um, donated a, a, a large amount of money to us for us to expand our behavioral health services in the uh, Sioux Falls and surrounding areas here in South Dakota. Uh, we actually started construction of that new facility after COVID began, and it just opened about a month ago um, with uh, a greater expansion of inpatient beds for mental health services. We actually opened um, an urgent care um, for uh, behavioral health needs and then also expanded um, significantly our services uh, to uh, young folks, to teenagers, um, because through the pandemic, um, we have been seeing, just like I presume everyone else around our area and the country, a large increase in uh, uh, behavioral health concerns involving our, our young folks, um, our teenagers, and even down into um, elementary school age. Uh, individuals. Um, and we will continue to see that need increase uh, because actually in response to this uh, call, I did check with um, our administrator of that area and within 24 hours of opening, uh, we were full. Um, wow. And that's just the need for the area um, right now um, in behavioral health services. And one other item that we did uh, work with uh, another healthcare provider here in our community, along with the city of Sioux Falls and uh, Minnehaha County and Lincoln County, which are the two counties where the city of Sioux Falls is located. We opened um, um, uh, an entity uh, as well called The Link, which is focused on more um, dependency issues, uh, wherein if one of our community members is having a concern with uh, dependency, they can go there and receive the help that they need in hopes of keeping them out of the hospital emergency rooms or our homeless shelters um, or other care locations, which just are not right for them at that moment. So uh, the community is coming together and hopefully expanding those services. And that will be something uh, we will expand probably into the future because um, uh, those needs will only be growing. Yeah, I think I appreciate you sharing that because for the, for people that are in the audience or either one managing a, a legal department or working on those issues in in both in medicine and legal and, and social work and the community and otherwise, they probably know how what is happening, but others might not. And so I think hearing those numbers, like you open a facility and it's full automatically, is something I think is really powerful to help push health policy and help push health services and, 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 and try to think like an optimistic outcome to this, maybe that it does kind of create this idea that mental health services are health services. I and mean, we talk about health parity, but we know that that didn't get us probably where we need to, where we fully needed to be. Dave, how about you? What, is, what have been some of the problematic implications of, of mental health after the pandemic or during the pandemic? And what are some of the solutions that you're seeing at the, at the Cleveland Clinic? Well, Sarah, I'm, I'm glad you raised the topic and Rich, uh, kudos to you and Avera. I mean, it, those are a lot of efforts. I know that uh, this is something that's getting, we've always had uh, a number of services in uh, beds on behavioral health um, and with respect to juvenile um, and let's say youth uh, mental health issues, it, you both have said what we've seen. I mean, it's just uh, an overwhelming problem uh, and that it's one that there are clearly not enough beds, counselors and the like right now, and that uh, we are looking at how we can expand our services and we do a lot already, but but we and others need to do more. Um, I'll, I'll say one thing is that, I mean, it's an area that's been traditionally underfunded pre-COVID and it's only uh, more severely underfunded 
with all the additional problems. Uh, as I mentioned, government relations uh, uh, reports to me, we've got a great director and team. And so uh, they, along with others, uh, clearly trying to get additional funding, um, but regardless of that funding, uh, you know, we are uh, looking at how we can expand and particularly with regard to young adults uh, where the, the need is. And, and as you said, Rich, all the way down the, the age groups. Um, I think the other thing that I'm just going to throw out is that during this period of time, too, we have seen that there's additional um, violence uh, against caregivers. Uh, and it's not just behavioral health patients, but, but that is another factor that I think has been pretty uniform across the US that with all the stresses and strains that our caregivers are also under um, uh, you know, additional pressure with regard to um, problems that arise with patients. And I think the caregivers in the behavioral health area are really renowned for being um, great to deal with those types of issues, but but with additional volume and like, it really does wear on the workforce. Um, but I just ended by saying we all have to do more uh, because it's these are the kind of problems if you don't deal with them early on, certainly with youth, children, uh, it doesn't get any better. And uh, so that this along with a lot of other Areas I think that that there's been additional focus on social determinants of health, um, certainly beyond just the mental health. I know that lead and other issues had a lot of attention by our group, infant mortality. So I know I'm morphing into a little bit broader discussion, Sarah, but I think that that there has been additional focus on again disparities, and uh, that's I think they've been. Uh, clearly echoed across the U.S. as far as we all have to do more. You know, it's interesting because all the issues that we're talking about existed before COVID existed. Um, violence in healthcare. I, I wrote an article for AHLA on active shooters um, because I was thinking a lot about violence and what was happening. And I think there's probably... It, it, I, I don't think it went away. It's likely will get worse with mental health, um, opiate addiction, and that crisis. Um, our, the staffing and burnout was there before. So I think you're right, Dave. These, these are issues we knew about before. Um, also, social determinants of health, the idea that, um, you know, and health equity, which I think is a a newish word about something that we probably all have thought about, but we need to put like a framework around it so we can focus on it um, in, in the ways that we're focusing on these other issues. Uh, I, I think you completely agree. Um, what's interesting is at the same time we're working on those issues, we have new tools in some ways because like Rich, you were talking about this idea of like a lot of virtual care, um, not being its own thing, but being something that is integrated into care delivery. Um, we have new codes from CMS around uh, even for, uh, remote therapeutic services. So you, you know, doctors could get data as they're going up through their month and could, um, you know, we have virtual visits that were, you, you can reach out. There's some payment for talking to your doctor in, in between um, if you meet certain criteria, we obviously have telehealth that we're looking at. Um, Dave, when I think about the Cleveland Clinic, I, I think about drones and AI and research. And, and Rich, when I think of Avera, I think about this really intricate telehealth, you know. And, and um, so, you know, in some ways, you're both at places that are really focused on some of this cutting edge healthcare delivery. What do you think is the future of care delivery? Like, what does it look like? Um, Rich, what do you think? Well, thank you for that, Sarah. And I guess I would say all of the above with regard to the delivery of healthcare. Uh, we have a program um, here that's being championed by our senior vice president in the communications called Precision Patient Relationships. 
And what that really boils down to is we have to provide health care to our uh, patients wherever they are. Um, either are they at home? Are they at work? Are they um, at uh, another location? Are they on vacation for two months? Are they um, uh, in their vehicle for that matter? Uh, what the pandemic has taught us is we have to be flexible in how to deliver the healthcare that is needed in our communities. And so we are trying to develop programs um, to have virtual visits, uh, which we have done and succeeded, and we are um, delivering uh, care versus virtual visits. We are even instituting in some locations where our ACOs are active, home visits. Um, we are utilizing um, another business unit of ours called Avera at Home, where caregivers go to individuals' home and deliver healthcare. And that's part of, uh, you know, that initiative to bring healthcare to where those patients are. Um, and through uh, uh, the reimbursement, the regulatory issues, um, we've developed, you know, plans where uh, due to um, some flexibility brought on by COVID, you know, we can uh, be financially successful in bringing those healthcare models to the communities um, where we deliver services. Uh, and that's something that we believe will continue even when um, COVID is in our rearview mirror. Um, hopefully that will be sooner rather than later. So it's just another way of thinking about bringing healthcare to um, the communities where we offer services. Where is that patient located? And what is the best mechanism to get them their healthcare that is needed at that time? Right, and it's interesting because those are some of the models that were happening previously. Um, I, Dave, I'm gonna ask you the same question, but it's interesting because one of the things I've been thinking about is thinking about working with clients on watching some of these kind of initial telemedicine, they were called telemedicine programs at the time and not telehealth, but, but the idea of like things would kind of get launched and they would, sometimes there would be a strategy around it. Sometimes it would be a champion within the organization would push like a particular service line forward. Um, and then there would have to be a reevaluation of what technology went with that, or if there was supplemental services from another department that had to go with it. And there was a lot of tweaking. And it makes me think now like a lot, we grew a lot real fast in this area, even, even places that were really entrenched in telehealth. It, uh, I'm wondering if there will be a, like a reevaluation or a supplementing or some kind of reinitiation of a strategic plan around technology, innovation, care and care delivery. All right, thanks Sarah, that, um, that there's, we have to be constantly looking at how we can innovate for better care, obviously cost-effective. Um, and also there's always going to be personalized healthcare, additional gadgets, additional ways to monitor our health on an ongoing basis. Clearly not a lot of entrepreneurial activity and, and we, we and others uh, look at how we can adapt what we do, um, not only telemedicine from, a, from individual uh, engagement. And by the way, mental health, uh, uh, what I understand is that really the growth of counseling using telemedicine was uh, readily accepted by people with behavioral problems. I think it just the intimacy, the not having to go out. Um, and so I think that there are things we've learned in that process. So I think there's going to be the constant evolution, personalized medicine, personalized uh, genomics, whatever. But we also all have to uh, treat populations that don't have as many resources or may not be as tech savvy. And so we always try to, and Rich, I know you do too, is to say, how can we make medicine uh, more accessible and it may be something simple, like remember to take your meds every day. Um, and there are lots of things like that. But but we have to, we all have to think about varying levels of expertise uh, and resources. And as a not-for-profit, we have to serve them all. And for-profits, 
very much the same way. Yeah, it's interesting that I, I don't, the idea of like cultural competency, cultural navigation was something that was really like going physically out into the communities. But now it's, um, it's not just that, it's understanding how communities interact with technology and whether that there might not just be one way or they might not, or there might be barriers, right, to that technology, both from a literary standpoint, actually having the technology or even just like a cultural um, consideration around it, either making it more accessible or less based on, on those issues. So it's like not one size fits all. So, well, so um, I asked you this, both of you this question last year. So I'm gonna ask you again, which is if you could get into your time machine, if you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself? Um, I don't know if it's last year, but I would say maybe in 2020, like what would you go back and say to yourself about the pandemic or, or personally even? Rich, you go first. <laughs> All right, Rich, you oh, Thanks, Dave, appreciate that. Okay, hey, that's a great question today as it was uh, last year and, and the year before. Oh, gosh, if I could go back in time, um, I suppose, uh, you know, just on a personal level, professional level, and uh, it's all about um, understanding. It's all about um, patience, you know, taking uh, what is in front of you, um, be it, um, you know, being in your house for two months and um, not filling up your gas tank because you haven't gone anywhere uh, during the height of the lockdowns or coming back into the office and seeing uh, new projects just coming one after the other and knowing that your staff is um, at its wit's end um, because of um, the workload um, that is thrust upon all of us. Everyone just has to have some patience and understanding um, with each other so that um, we can not only get through this uh, pandemic, um, but then also uh, make sure that what we do actually during the pandemic is, as I mentioned before, you know, value add and also um, answers um, the needs, um, not only for our business leaders throughout our organizations, but the patients that we serve as well. So Dave, how about you? What would you tell yourself? Um, I would tell myself to take that trip before the borders closed down, but that's a personal element. <laughs> that's, you know, I think not putting off something because you think you can do it later. That's a pretty good lesson. That's yeah. a pretty good lesson. Who would have thought you couldn't go between Canada and the U.S. for over two years? But that's just a personal issue. So now I think that, um, I think we've all been, there's lots of bad things, but there's also a lot of pleasant surprises with regard to just say collaborations. I mean, uh, we have seen collaborations with local hospitals. There's still competitors, but collaboration on testing, uh, resources, sharing resources and like, that's been a very good positive. And I think that, um, uh, taking those opportunities uh, and trying to make those final matter, make those collaborations with government as well um, and work on those and try to make them long lasting. I think predictably, I mean, how it, it would have been difficult to anticipate vaccinations and how that would come out in the divisions within society and within workforces and the like. Um, and I think that I'll just reflect on the fact that I think lawyers, uh, I mean, most of us uh, that we practice law, but we are also counselors where people get pulled into public relations issues. We get pulled into difficult societal issues with regard to vaccinations and all of the, the temperature that, that went into that. Um, I think that it's probably best that we that we didn't know then how long it's gonna take, uh, just from a standpoint of, we were always looking for the light at the end of the tunnel and hope. And, and I think that there've been a lot of great things and I, you know, this too will pass. But I think that um, who would have thought that when we're, we're going back a few years and it's 
we're overbetting. And then when you go through the pandemic, that's clearly not the case. We go through globalization and you look at medicines and, and uh, devices and the like. And I know that N95 wasn't something that was in my lexicon, uh, but you learn that you have to be part of a team that adjusts. And I think there's rewards in all of that. Uh, but in one sense, I think it's good that we didn't know we'd still be yeah. in it at this point. To me, I mean, I think um, a lot of um, people have to give themselves space to be, it's okay to be tired, right? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to wish it was gone. You know, I, I think you're, I think you're right about that. If, if, if Mark was here, not that I want to speak for Mark Goldstone, but, um, but one of the things I think he and I would agree um, is like what to be prepared, right? For if this is, however, this, this COVID-19 looks or whatever it's labeled as, um, it, it's likely going to be with us for a while in some, some form and some, whatever the label or definition is put on it, it's still something that will be, need to be addressed in our society and healthcare uh, or, or some future issue that, that could be similar. Um, you know, I think one of the things Mark had talked about in a, a prior podcast was, you know, how do we make sure our system is built so that we don't like lose the memory of this and that we're ready again. So I think a lot of people were surprised there was a Delta and then there was an Omicron and then there's like a sub variant. And now like, could there be another one or not? How would that impact hospitalizations? Um, what are some of, you know, I mean, Dave, I remember you all were putting up, you know, creating other hospital spaces and doing a lot to prepare for surges. Um, Rich, I know you did surge preparedness. Um, is there any, like, one tidbit or, or something that you, you can think of that would be helpful for preparing for the future? Well, again, I think that um, in offering some, some thought or suggestion, I think that Everybody on this call and others have, have things they add to that. I think that that I've been very pleased at the time that I just stay within the law department, but I think it extends the, the socialization so people know each other. Um, it's something we need to guard as we go to hybrid models, but the teamwork because people knew and trusted each other, uh, that's been rewarding to see. And I know that as we kind of move into the new environment, uh, I know we all think about, yes, people can work from home or I have, I think that's a strong model, hybrid, whatever, but that personal connection so that you know the person you're speaking with, not just over a Zoom call, but you, you evidence that, that teamwork. And I think that, um, and when you go into the clinical areas and, uh, other areas, the teamwork that you see there, you just have to reward people uh, and hope that that's a muscle uh, that you can always call on because there's always going to be something new. So one of the things I did last year was I made you play a game I play with my kids, which is high, low, ha, ha. The idea is what is the best thing that happened? What is the low? What was the funny thing? And so I'm going to make you guys do it again, but I'll do it first because that way it makes you think, but I'm going to make you think on your feet, uh, a skill that you obviously have worked on during the pandemic. Right. So, um, so the high, my high was, um, for me, it's been working on health equity issues. Um, I think that this is the next level of support. I'm glad that we're getting that attention around social determinants of health. I hope we take some of these academic words and start talking about people not having food and that people die because of race, that gender pronouns sometimes create barriers. And we, and we really like kind of have these kind of tough conversations in healthcare and, and as a system in our society and, and move things forward. And I'm really, I think my high has been working on those and working at my firm around creating some support for our clients and others on that. And really that's been my high. Um, I think my low was this fall with my kids and really being impacted, um, having watching them having to go home because they had an exposure or going back and forth. And I think that has been tough on a lot of, of um, parents. And I feel very grateful that I have a job with 
a level of flexibility. And, um, but I also, it's hard to watch how the impact that has on your family and your kids. So that was my low personally. I mean, I've canceled speaking things and hybrided in and all that, but really it's watching that impact on schools and children. Um, I think my funny is that I was telling my, um, my, my kids are twins and they're in um, elementary school. And I was telling one of them, I was going to throw like a birthday party or some kind of thing over the summer, get people together outside. And my daughter being as deadpan as she could, and you two know me well, looks at me and goes, are you going to have a theme? And I was like, sure, I'll have a theme. Why not? And, and she said, what's your theme? Is it going to be a grown-up theme or a theme kids would like? And I was like, I think it could be a theme that kids are like, I don't know. And she goes, is your theme going to be public health? And I was like, what? And she was just kidding, mommy. And um, so I think I might've been had a lot of public health talks in our house about masking and vaccines and why we're staying home or whatever. But I just was like, oh my gosh, this kid's killing me. All I could think of was like uh, bouquets of uh, COVID tests. And I don't know, she, she was pretty funny. But um, so, uh, so Rich, what was your high, your low and your funny moment of this year? Well, um, thus far, the, <clears throat> the high, um, you know, getting uh, more and more out in the community um, on a personal and professional level, you know, doing more meetings in person again, uh, and um, actually getting to know um, our neighborhood neighbors um, again and, and having them over, uh, which has always been uh, something, you know, we've wanted to do throughout our uh, neighborhood, um, but haven't had the chance and what better way to do it is when, you know, a lot of uh, other areas uh, are closed down and, and um, reopening slowly, but get to know people in person who are, live closest to you. Um, the low, um, I suppose, has been uh, what you uh, indicated and what we've talked about before. Uh, there's been some individuals in um, my family and friends' lives that have had some mental health challenges um, throughout the pandemic. Um, and really uh, trying to get them uh, the services and care that they need uh, has been something we've been able to focus on um, uh, in leading them into, um, I guess, a better outlook at life now, now that we are hopefully coming out of this and uh, uh, pandemic and, and moving forward. Um, and I guess the last thing funny is, um, I haven't had one recently, but I will say the funniest thing I recall about, uh, you know, two years ago now, uh, you know, we went home essentially in mid-March and didn't come out of our houses until, I don't know, Memorial Day or so. And um, I actually had to go fill up uh, one of our cars with gas. And I drove to the gas station and, and it took me a couple seconds to remember how the devil to fill a gas can again, um, you know, put in the credit card and press the buttons and so forth. And so that struck me as funny when you get out of the habit of doing things, you know, I don't know if that's a short term memory lapse or a long term memory lapse. Um, so I found that pretty funny uh, in dealing with, you know, trying to get gas to lean into the car. That's pretty funny. Dave, how about you? What was your high, your low, and your funny moment? Hey, Rich, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email you. So I, I'm on the putting gas in the car. I, I'm one step below. So I'll, I'll get some advice from you. Right? <laughs> um, that sounds good, Dave. No, I, I think, uh, listen, I think that, uh, that the people are kind of blend the high and the low. I mean, I think that we have been around caregivers who have it much worse than uh, lawyers trying to figure out where they work. And I think that the high is the, the kind of the teamwork that I've been very pleased with, that uh, with regard to the lawyers, members of government relations, everybody jumped in. So I think I like to say I hire well and delegate better. And I think seeing all of them perform a great service for the institution, no matter where we're practicing is that's, that's rewarding because they deserve all the credit. I think the low is that, I mean, we all lost somebody or saw people who had it much worse. And I think that, uh, that uh, also, I think our caregivers, 
when when I came into work most days, but I didn't have to deal with the stresses they had. So I think that that you see people who had it tough, uh, behavioral health or otherwise. So that's that's something that um, is difficult. I think with regard to the funny, um, I'm not going to give the specifics, but I think we probably have some Zoom call stories, all of us, about people who forgot the camera or hit the wrong button. <laughs> Dave, and, my kids still love your story, by the way, but I won't say it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm going to save the rest for my book. How's that? <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, I uh, I do want to thank you both for for coming today. We've had a lot of uh, struggles this year. We've had a lot of uh, innovation and opportunities this year. Uh, I don't think any of us thought we'd be doing this podcast this year either. Um, it'll be interesting if we're getting together next year. I, I, I would like it to be an optimistic one, but we, you know, it would be interesting to see what year three out looks like. Um, but I, I do want to thank Rich and Dave. I want to thank you both for joining us today uh, and supporting HLA in getting out information uh, about what's happening in the pandemic. I know it's, it's well-received and it's been very helpful. Uh, to others out there. So I want to thank you both. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Rich. Yes, thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.